Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview C Money Burns. He is a producer, musician, and political commentator. And he's coming to us live tonight from Maine. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. Let's do it. All right, welcome back. How are you? Yo, yo, I'm doing great. Yourself? Oh, pretty good. I think we were following up, uh, I don't know, was it October? September, October, last time we uh, we spoke? Something along those lines, I think. Yeah, yeah, sometime in the fall. What's new? Um, You know, I've been working on a bunch of records. Uh, I got a, a few records that ended up on some year-end lists. Uh, just been kind of building out my business, my studio recording business. I got some gear that's real specific and nerdy basically it's a it's a box with knobs but it's real special to me and it makes records sound real good um so i've been working on tons of music stuff some different podcasts stuff like that are you uh are you in business for yourself full-time or do you have a job for the man no i'm in business for myself full-time uh, it took a long time to get there. Uh, it was like up until I was like 41. Um, you know, I worked uh, for Apple at the Apple store as one of the genius bar dudes for, for a while. Um, and it was good for a while, but I built my recording business kind of along the side. And then once I got enough income going from that, I kind of jumped ship to just start doing that full time. And thankfully, I have enough business to keep doing it. So your primary, uh, you know, profession or whatever, uh, is you're kind of like, you know, the audio professional maybe behind or behind the scenes and whatnot, but, um, you do like to get out in front of the mic and, you know, you have some stuff to say, some commentary, some politics too as well, right? I mean, I'd say like in my art, I, I, I like to work with people who have stuff to say. I'm not a vocalist per se. I don't like, I'm not... I, I play, I'm a musician, I'm a performer, but I'm not like a persona. I don't like a lot of people looking at me and I don't like to be on a mic. So I tend to imbue the music more with that stuff. One of my collaborators is my good friend Brzezowski and we see eye to eye on a lot of politics. Our albums are really heavily political, uh, heavily layered sort of stuff. He's like one of the smartest dudes I know. He's one of the only rappers who doesn't use the word I. Um, and we've done several records together. We have a bunch more coming out. Um, we did one recently called The Subjugation of Bread, and we did a, a cassette and we did a, a lyric book along with it. So we designed like a little sort of coffee table book with a lot of imagery to 
kind of flesh out what some of the lyrics were getting at. That was a lot of fun. But as far as like getting to talk about my political leanings, um, I've I guessed on some podcasts um, for a while. Me and my buddy Pat ran a podcast uh, called Trickle Down Socialism, and we got to talk about a lot of stuff. Then um, we've kind of had a rejiggering of priorities, so we're we're working on getting another podcast together. But I don't get too many chances to air those views these days, so I'm really glad you asked me to come back on. Yeah, man, uh, you're up there in uh, New England. Maine? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Bowdoin, Maine. Okay. And you got a little studio set up there? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in my studio right now. Um, unfortunately, it's facing this way, so you can't see it, but I, I feel like it's pretty impressive for a single dude studio. Um, I, I specialize in, like, analog gear and recording and making stuff for, like, cassette and vinyl, so I have some gear that's real specific to the analog world. Do you, so when you collaborate with artists and stuff, do they come to your, uh, you know, your studio or do you kind of, you know, rip some tracks off the Internet or how's that kind of work? How's your process work? For me, I'm more of a, a mix and master engineer. So that's like after the recording part is done. When I collaborate with an artist, usually they're recording somewhere else. Um, I work with people kind of all around the world, but with the internet, it's super easy to just move stuff back and forth. But generally, like when I'm working on a record, like I get all the files for the record after it's done, either like the individual tracks for mixing or the finished tracks for mastering and i kind of do my thing and we send stuff back and forth with revision notes until it works out in a way everybody likes so fortunately i for me i'm a little bit of a recluse a little bit of a loner so it works really well for me i get to work by myself and uh also with some really talented artists all around the world i got some stuff on my mind see money let's cut it i bet you do Let's cut it up. Let's do it. What, what you thinking about? Well, you know, uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of brainwashed individuals. I was one of them. I didn't have anything, anything else going on Sunday night. So I, like many Americans and uh, like many people around the world, was watching it. Um, I, I, I didn't realize uh, until today that I guess they, they, um, the Israelis aided uh, by the Americans, us, you know, we are complicit in this genocide. They bombed a refugee camp, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, um, you know, supplied by U.S. taxpayers, the bombs, the planes. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty fitting, you know, because while we're all kind of brainwashed by this, you know, this uh, give them bread and circuses distraction, you know, make sure that the, the populace doesn't revolt. You know, they snuck in this ginormous political agenda that if we had a free press in the United States, it should be front page news everywhere. Not who who won the game, who was the MVP or, you know, when was Taylor Swift? What was her what was her, uh, you know, flight itinerary? When was she going to get there? Was she going to kiss uh, Kelsey on the field after the game? None of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter yesterday. It doesn't matter today. But, uh, you know, maybe dozens of innocent lives were lost because of us. We're the taxpayers. We are complicit in this genocide. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I caught bits here and there. I'm not a huge sports ball dude. You know, go figure. Uh, commie musician guy. Um, <laughs> but I... I like the I like observing the cultural stuff around it, you know, seeing the commercials because, 
usually there, there are some extra stupid ones. The halftime stuff. I'm an old school Usher fan, I would say, but didn't really actually watch the game part. But one of the commercials I found really interesting in regards to what you're talking about. Did you see the commercial with BB? Uh, no, go ahead. Talk about it. There was a commercial with Benjamin Netanyahu. Basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't watch it that closely. I, I just had, I had it on in the background. I was cooking food. I was playing games. Yeah. Yeah. This so is, this I did is not worth, watch it that closely. Yeah, that clip, that commercial is worth finding just for how appalling and bald-faced it is that while he is blowing up children with bombs that are tax dollars bought, he's also trying to propagandize Americans at, like, the biggest sporting event of the year where people are, like, ready to be brainwashed, you know? It was just, like, such a spectacular display of, I don't know, hypocrisy and doubling down and just the grossest parts of kind of American hegemony and our really, really sick relationship with Israel, the state, not, I do want to differentiate between Israel, the state and Judaism, the religion. I think yeah, yeah, entirely separate things there. I I don't, I don't want to commingle any of that sort of stuff. You know, I love my Jewish friends. I have many of them, but you know, I have serious reservations about an apartheid state that blows up, you know, 24,000 people to make a political point. I believe in religious tolerance. Mm. Uh, I think that um, religious freedom was one of the good things that our country, I guess, in theory, America, was founded on. I don't believe the United States is a Christian state. I think it's a democracy. Uh, with that being said, I don't think any religious state should exist Uh, including Israel. I don't think Israel has the right to exist. I don't think it should exist. I think in the place of Israel, which is just some land with arbitrary borders that was stolen from the Palestinians, in the place, you know, I think that there should be a democratic society, not an apartheid state where some people are held, you know, or are above others, you know, in terms of their religious views or whatever, their ethnicity. Um, I I believe in a, you know, I think the two-state settlement would be a good, um, good starting point. But hopefully, you know, a democratic society where, you know, Palestinians, um, you know, Israelis could exist peacefully um, with equal rights, that sort of thing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think religious tolerance is a good thing. I just don't like religious states. I like the idea uh, of separation of church church and state. I don't believe the United States is a Christian state, although if you ask some people on the right – they might tell you otherwise, but I think America was founded on some good principles, uh, and we're still a work in progress. Of course, uh, Madison, you know, he wanted to he wanted to construct a government to protect the opulent minority from the majority, essentially, you know, the rich white property owners and their ability uh, to own property. He wanted to make sure that uh, there was not a equal distribution of resources. He wanted to make sure the rich and powerful stayed rich and powerful. And that's kind of the way our society was constructed. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Israel, and there's a lot of people that think like Israel and, and American politicians are propped up or owned by Israel. And that couldn't be 
Further from the truth, Israel exists only because U.S. power centers want it to exist. Israel only exists because the United States and its power centers want to have a, wants to have a foothold in uh, the Middle East so it can control the world's oil supply. Of course, we are still, um, you know, an oil-based economy. Uh, but any point in time, if, um, you know, we stopped com- being complicit in this genocide and stopped funding Israel and stopped providing it with military, financial, and ideological support, military support, it would cease to exist. So what say you? Um, you know, I agree. I agree with a lot of that. I think it's important to draw out that part of the reason Israel exists is because Winston Churchill was a closet anti-Semite and wanted a place to send the Jews of Europe. And the British controlled the, the, the partition in Palestine at the time. Um, and, you know, a lot of people these days have misgivings about the colonialism that let them do that, even. Uh, but, you know, in regards to America supporting Israel, we have one of the largest uh, Jewish populations outside of Israel. Um you know, a lot of people emigrated here after World War II to leave Europe who didn't go to Israel. So the U.S., up until recent years, has has felt like it's had an obligation to Israel, the whole never forget sort of thing. And I think that, that some of that is legitimate. They were put upon population who, you know, had a genocide attempted against them. But I think it's been really interesting to see the turn in tide of public opinion, given Israel's displays of really kind of nationalistic fervor. You know, you're talking about religious states and ethnostates. Ethnos, a religious ethnostate is a fundamental fascist project. It's fundamentally right-wing, it's fundamentally conservative. It privileges uh, a, a minority over a majority. Um, so I think anything to the ends of protecting Israel is going to have a fundamentally fascist tinge. But I think if you look at like the government of who in particular, as opposed to like, his forebears, um, like Yitzhak Rabin, he is even further right, like his party is far, far, far right. They're at, some of his party members are outright calling for the literal genocide of Palestinians and are cheering the deaths of Palestinian children. Um, you know, right before uh, this October 7th stuff, uh, before Hamas started its offensive and took all of its hostages, Israel had its largest protest in history because uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was trying to invalidate a large part of the Israeli judiciary so he could just push through whatever legislation he wanted without judicial pushback. So they went from having uh, over, you know, his to the U.S. cheering him on like a week later. Um, it, it's just, it, it's kind of a whiplash and it's it's interesting and it's concerning to see the realignment in in American politics because you see that that worrying coalescing that horseshoe thing of the far left and the far right the anti-war anti-imperialist far left and then the anti-semitic far right and 
they're unfortunately saying some of the same things. So some of them are getting mistaken for the others. And uh, a lot of people aren't really precise with how they're expressing themselves and they're expressing themselves really emotionally. And I think that the anti-Semitism line is getting crossed by people who wouldn't normally cross it. Um, it's, it's weird to see, but it's, you know, I think the commercial with Benjamin Netanyahu on the Super Bowl is indicative of the fact that he realizes that America is no longer a monolith behind Israel. That they're they're, they're, they're losing the public relations been, battle. Yeah, the lines have been redrawn. So he is coming to the people personally himself, um, which is, you know, I think just another indic- indicator of his autocratic tendencies as well. He thinks... He, only he can do it, and he can do it better than anyone else. I, I think um, I think a lot's been going on here the last couple weeks. I prepared some stuff to talk about, but um, speaking of, let's kind of stay with pop culture, the Super Bowl. I do want to get into Taylor Swift. Um, we spoke yeah. a little bit about the music industry um, in the past. I did read an article since I last spoke to you about some of these streaming services, essentially they're going to give their big name acts. They're going to give them more money per streams, and they're going to pay the little guys less per stream. So if you have like less than I don't know ten or fifty thousand streams, something like that, you get the lowest rate. And if you have I don't know a billion streams or more, like Taylor Swift, you get the highest rate. You know, so it's a, essentially um, you know a system capitalism where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, but Maybe we can come back to it. We, you spoke a little bit about Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the far right uh, state of Israel. They don't have a free press. They uh, frequently close down any um, media outlets that are critical of the state of Israel. Uh, I saw their Al Jazeera um, location in Israel got shut down. Israel is a rogue state that doesn't uh, follow international law because it is a client state of the United States. It inherits, you know, the, the rights of the United States. So, you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to um, abide by national treaties or international law. When you have, um, you know, the terror state, the largest military in the world, the world's foremost superpower behind you, backing you, and, um, you know, carrying out. You're, you're carrying out its agenda. You can do whatever you want. Um, but yeah, I'm not a fan of, of Israel uh, and their politics. I'm, I can be critical of the state of Israel without being anti-Semitic. Uh, I think religious tolerance is a great thing. Um, but I don't think that a uh, country, you know, carrying out genocide is a good thing, especially no, in the no. name of, uh, I don't know, I don't know what they're, I guess, never never again kind of thing. But, you know, anyways, that's that's all propagandized. Um, I, I think there's good people there in Israel, too. I wanted to transition to Putin here because there was a big speech or a big uh, interview, I guess, with, uh, yeah. with Dr. Carlson. But give me one yeah. second about, let's stick on in, in Israel for a second here. Speaking of, you know, no free press, I saw a lot of resistance in Israel, much like the resistance in Russia. You know, those people are getting locked up. I saw yeah. um, protesters in Israel, Israeli citizens, getting beat up, um, 
thrown in jail. I saw that uh, independent media on the West Bank in the occupied territories, apparently there's a lot of violence right now with the settlers, you know, carrying out direct violence against the Palestinians there as they continue to kind of expand that territory. And of course, there are bad people, you know, uh, Israeli citizens, just like there's bad Americans here doing bad things. Um, you know, but but um, I think there's a lot to be said about the people that are protesting in Israel, Israeli citizens that are getting beat up by their own security forces. Of course, forces that um, are taught and trained here in the United States and they're, and kind of vice versa. They train our killing forces, our police forces. We train theirs and, and vice versa. And, of course, there's a sharing of military technology and that kind of thing. But, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a pretty far-right autocratic society, it seems like. You know, you can't speak... Uh, and, and be critical of Israel. You can't really protest. Um, and, and if you do, you're going to be violently, you know, beat up, thrown in jail, or maybe worse. I mean, I guess on October 7th, right, there was uh, numerous reports of the, the IDF security forces killing um, innocent civilians, innocent Israeli citizens, right? So I'm sure that happens pretty frequently, not just then. Oh, well, uh, they even shot some of their own hostages that they were going to rescue who were coming at them with, like, white flags. Um, Yeah, from what I have read from on-the-ground reports in Israel, uh, from more, like, leftist sources there, like like the the – protests against this is is unimaginable in scale like picking up steam yeah yeah i mean like i had said right before october 7th they had the largest protests in israeli history against uh bb's power grab already so the people were already primed against him and like any leader who's cornered he uses a state of emergency and you know a catastrophe to take emergency powers and to suspend certain rights and to false flag operation if you will right i mean some people have have accused him of that i think that I, I don't think you need to go that far to see that he is a political animal who will take advantage of whatever situation presents itself. I mean, I think, you know, it might be a confluence of things like 9-11, certain security issues that were overlooked at the time or not kind of connected together to show that there was a plan. I think it may have been more something like that, but that's kind of anecdotal. But, you know, it's quite clearly he did a power grab and is trying to stay in power after. And there is, you know, uh, there are great public voices against him, but there's also great crushing of dissent going on there. But from what I have read, Many, many, many of the people want there to be another ceasefire. The only time hostages were released was when there was a ceasefire. It, you know, that was the only time that was successful. And that is that seems to be what, like, the Israeli citizens want is the hostages released. They don't aren't they don't want to decimate Gaza necessarily. I mean, some do, but. I think the opinion is really kind of kind of split and disparate. It's not monolithic like it's being painted. I think most rational people, most human beings, when given the option of peace or violence, would choose peace. I think it's only these psychopaths that are in power that tend to prefer war and constant war. Of course, the United States, we've essentially been at war since what, 1776, even though the national territory hasn't been in serious jeopardy since the War of 1812. 
No, but like, you know, the Monroe Doctrine was basically a way to say that that our self-interest extends, you know, it was on the Western Hemisphere, but now the Monroe the Doctrine is pretty much around the world. And right. like you had mentioned about having a foothold in the Middle East with Israel, you know, it's like we have a foothold next to China with Taiwan. We yeah, have, client states. We have we ally with yeah. these client states all around yeah, and the world we have like carry out our political South- agenda. Yeah, there are so many of those that we have just so we can Hundreds meddle. Of military them. bases all over the world. In, in, in fact, s- several of them surrounding the country of Iran, our biggest enemy. And I've seen memes like, oh, hey, what's the big idea with Iran putting your country uh, you know, in the middle of our military bases? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's it's like, you know, if, if China was parked on San Juan Capistrano off of San Francisco – and, and then saying that whatever happens there is their business and really supporting the insurgents in San Juan Capistrano. It's like that close. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's unconscionable that the U.S. thinks it's, it has any business in the South China Sea. Yeah. So, yeah, China, um, it's very prov- provocative, you know, U.S. foreign policy, obviously. Um, but like when we carry out military exercises miles off the China, um, miles off the Chinese borders, they're, they're saying, hey, this is a national security threat to us, um, you know, and, and, and they might, you know, send a ship or something, you know, kind of, you know, close to U.S. ships. And then, um, you know, we'll say something like, hey, you know, this is provocative of China. Um, you know, you're, you're interfering with our national security. And, 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 you know, if you believe, you know, relativism, you know, e- each claim is equal. Right. But, uh, you know, one one ship is, you know. Uh, a couple miles off the Chinese border and thousands of miles away from U.S. borders. So, like, how can how can it be equal claims? Like, how can we be interfering with, or how can China be interfering with U.S. national security when we're again thousands of miles from any you know U.S. border or territory? Well, um, it's interesting that you bring that up. I actually I I started reading a book recently. I don't know how familiar you are with the field of international relations. Um, but there, there are some theories about how nation states ever since like the Westphalian system interact with each other, how republics interact with each other, how alliances are made, how, Which I don't think, yeah, I don't think, I don't think nation states are legitimate um, as an anarchist. I want to get rid of these arbitrary borders and these nation states, but sure. I mean, let's hear the I mean, theories. Sure. I, I agree. Long time. I agree. Long term. In terms of the way countries interact with each other, there are kind of systemic ways that they do it, and there are established methods for it. But there is a a late theory. I don't know if you're familiar with neorealism or John Mearsheimer or that sort of stuff, but basically like great powers theory, The the way big states work, the way medium states and small states align with the interests of big states to protect themselves, the way big states model behavior that they want the smaller states to follow so they fall in line and how you know, with things like 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 UN declarations and UN votes, those are consensus building. There's a theory in that field called coercive diplomacy as well, which is really exactly as it sounds. It, it's to use force to not have to use more force later on. But at this point, with the way the the way geopolitics is going in the world. 
that sort of great power politics of, of the smaller countries falling in line with bigger countries, it's kind of falling apart. If you look at Israel in the Middle East, um, Israel and the U.S. are having a fractured relationship. Saudi Arabia, MBS, is taking charge of a lot of the regional politics in the area. He's a huge regional power player. You know, China has been trying to be more regional with their Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but there have been all these different sort of middle power states who haven't been aligning with the great powers anymore. And that's like a big conundrum for the diplomatic community and how to have countries interact with each other. It's kind of a new way of doing things. I don't want to say new world order, but I would say it's kind of post-U.S. global hegemony. It's like a multipolar world and we're seeing kind of the beginnings of that with these middle powers and regional powers if you look at some of the un votes like you know israel and united states are you know coming to be pariahs if you look at like votes on hunger um if you look at you know some votes on um human rights just you know you would think basic things you know, you're getting votes like 170 something to one, two, and it's usually the United States and Israel, and now recently Ukraine. You know, kind of voting with the yeah. with the power. Well, that's the thing is, like, it, it used to be like Russia and China and Iran and North Korea were those outlier states and those consensus building votes, but yeah, it's sort of flipped around. In the U.S., is seeing that its way of, of of being like the unipolar hegemon, like just because we have the most bombs and guns, that's not working anymore. We still have Putin. It's still working pretty well. It's still working well, pretty I mean, well. It's, it's yeah. working pretty well, but as far as deterrence goes, and that was kind of like our, our big thing was deterrence, it's not really working out so well. There have been 12 coups in Africa in 16 years, and most of those people were trained by by like like OAS type organizations by American taxpayers, you know, and now they're running their countries like military dictatorships with complete disregard for uh, democracy and freedom and equality and all of that sort of stuff. But then you also have like Ukraine and Putin invading Ukraine with absolute impunity, like the whole NATO alliance, the fact that. You know, the U.S. has the most nuclear bombs. That's not a deterrent, and he is determined to be a regional power. I believe well, Russia has the most nukes. Yeah, yeah, they have 6,000-something. We have 5,000 Ours are probably a little more advanced, though, but I think it, it would be something like 100 nukes to blow up the whole planet, or at least to yeah. – um, it'd be it'd be unlivable, something. So right. we, have, we have more than enough to destroy the planet. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Is I, I don't think either country is truthful about the amount they have on tap, but – between both, they have the most. <laughs> but it's have... just interesting to see that, like, nuclear deterrence doesn't work the way that it once did. That was always the thing. Like, we didn't want nuclear war. We had to avoid it. So we had to stockpile nukes. So we had that coercive diplomacy. We could kind of point at that big pile of nukes. But now now it doesn't work, and we don't quite know what is going to work now. We're, the United States is no longer um, the... The, the center manufacturing, you know, 
center of the world. At one point, we were prior to World War II. We're losing our economic edge. We're losing, you know, our economic dominance. Um, at one point in time, we had half the world's wealth uh, right after World War II, after uh, Germany was defeated. And ever since, we've been kind of losing that power. And even, you know, state planners knew at the time that we would never have this much power. That was the United States apex right around, I don't know, 19... Uh, 48, 47, something along those lines. It's kind of been going downhill ever since. What we still maintain, what we still have, is the advantage of force. We spend more on the military than the, the next 15 nations combined. We spend nearly as much on the military as half the world combined, or the rest of the world combined. I mean, it's getting to that point. I mean, we have damn near uh, a trillion-dollar military budget, and that's just what we know about. And the thing that the military budget does, we use fear, you know, to get the taxpayers to be okay with paying for it. You know, we have to create these enemies, you know, international terrorism or Putin or China or whatever else, you know, to, to spend this. But really what the Pentagon is, it's a funnel of taxpayer money to private high-tech industry. So while... You know, the research and development, that's paid for by the taxpayer. That's socialized. The profits are private. So when you look at companies like Boeing, which would collapse without the the nanny state, or Raytheon, or Northrop Grumman, or Lockheed Martin, or some of these other, you know, kind of advanced technology, military, industrial firms, they wouldn't exist without the nanny state and without, you know, U.S. power interests. And one of the things that... uh, Israel provides us is a, is a place to sell these weapons overseas. Uh, and then when we sell them to Israel, Saudi Arabia is like, hey, you, you got these fighter jets that we don't even know how to use. If Israel bought 50, we'll take 100 of them, you know. And the other thing that Israel allows us to do is to test these advanced weapon systems on live targets, the Palestinians. Those are people that don't even have rights. So we can kind of test out, um, you know, illegal uh, technologies and, and, you know, kill these unfortunate individuals in just awful ways. I mean, what's that sulfur gas, white phosphorus, whatever, where you, it burns the flesh off of you and it's illegal, of course. And I've just been seeing and retweeting every documented case I can find on, on Twitter, but you know, that kind of stuff happens all the time. That's only what we're, you know, able to see and view. And of course, Israel's doing their absolute best to not, not get free speech out there not to allow these um, views and, photographs but then they're also using their lobbying power in their in these companies like twitter and facebook not to get these images out there to get them wiped clean from the internet and then there's all sorts of um information about you know uh surveillance technology shipping you know all this information to israel and to you know places of intelligence um so that you know essentially we have this corporate state nexus where there's intelligence sharing i've said it before i'll say it again you know siri Alexa, Facebook. I mean, these are all narcs. These oh, are, it's data uh, gathering, yeah. Data gathering, big data, lack of privacy. They are... Um... Oh, man, did, did you hear? <laughs> My Siri was talking to me. Oh, no, I was Jesus talking shit. Christ, yeah, listening. Yeah. Oh. Are you listening, Siri? You goddamn narc. But, um, <laughs> you know, they are... Um, they are uh, government informants. You know, not just our government. I mean... People talk about, like, TikTok, you know, the Chinese government is stealing our data. What? No, of course they are, and so does every government. I'm an, I'm an anarchist, so I'm not in favor of any state government. Um, 
But, you know, if, if China is doing that and TikTok is doing that, you can only imagine in, in what's happening in America. It's probably 10 times worse. The corporate state Nexa in our advanced military industrial economy, it is way worse. 10, 10 maybe 100 times worse oh, yeah. than what they're doing in China. Well, speaking of Siri, that the company that made Siri, that Apple absorbed, the company that made it actually used DARPA research. Um, I, I, I have a book uh, called The Imagineers of War, and it's about the history of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Administration, kind of their, their history from starting in the Korean War up through the Gulf War and how a lot of the technology they developed, uh, drones, video games, like first-person shooter games, um, kind of modeling software, uh, voice control, voice recognition, how that all started out as defense projects. So all you can under the guise of up. defense. Under the guise, yeah, the, under of the guise of it. But that means that that information is still likely going back to defense-linked sources. I mean, if that's where the technology started, even if it's been privatized, like, they have the keys, they know how the shit works. Right. But, you know, you were talking about um, the defense industry itself becoming enriched through the U.S. sort of global hegemony and, and pushing war everywhere and having bases everywhere and how that's really used to uh, enrich the, the military industrial complex, the private military contractors who get all that the trillion dollar stuff. You know, the, I think that is the neoconservative side where the U.S. is kind of pushing its borders through force and trying to open up markets in other worlds. But, you know, the neoliberal side of that, which sometimes neoliberalism and neoconservatism work against each other, but sometimes they work again with each other. They're mostly in alignment. Why don't we dive into like, Yeah, a complementary angle is the global financial markets. You know, there's the petrodollar, which um, – you know, the, the countries who transact fuel with the U.S. have agreed to transact in dollars, and this goes way back to the 70s when they agreed to do that, uh, rather than in regional currencies that fluctuate a lot. The, and the, the price dollar has to be manipulated. Expensive. It can't get too low because that's going to cut in on profits, but it can't get too high because that's going to decrease demand. So yeah. it has to kind of stay within this manipulated range. Well, and that's where you get a confounding factor like OPEC, where these countries have agreed to deal in petrodollars, but they control the spigot. And then, you know, they're at a point where they don't necessarily see the value of working with the petrodollar anymore because that's controlled by the U.S. It's controlled by the SWIFT banking system, and the U.S. has used its financial regime to turn off credit to various places in the world, various countries in the world. Predatory loans, you know, loans with yeah. lots of stipulations, predatory. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you're talking about like IMF and World Bank. IMF, exactly. Neocolonialism, yeah. you know, using the but financial beyond system. that, yeah, like the swift banking system, like, like they can cut off your funds anywhere in the world. And there are regimes that do not agree with the way we selectively enforce human rights stuff around the world. We'll put sanctions on particular people from particular countries like oligarchs in Russia and stuff like that who are doing exactly what rich people here are doing. And they see that as unfair or as hypocritical. And as much as I... 
am not a fan of Russian oligarchs. I, I think there's there's a certain truth to that, you know, like how can we let our rich guys get away with the same stuff we're sanctioning other ones for? And why should they submit to our credit system, our sanctions regime like there's no net benefit for them if they can transact in another currency and transact only regionally and not have other countries breathing down their necks about human rights that they're not following themselves then it only stands to reason that that's going to work out best for them um and you know that's where i see like neoliberalism coming in is it really wants it it Neoliberalism is a way that capitalism thrives without democracy, without actual like political liberalism. Um, it's you know, a propaganda I, term. When they use so what Chomsky says about I'm a big Chomsky reader, and I think a lot of the yeah. stuff you talk about is stuff that he's commented on. So I think we have different sourcing, but we're reading much of the same material. But what oh, Chomsky yeah. said about neoliberalism is it's not new and it's not liberal. It's you know, it's yeah. basically class warfare. What it is is a giant state, a powerful state where essentially we subsidize private industry with taxpayer dollars. So while the funding is public. The profits are private. So that's essentially yeah. what you get is a nanny state, a welfare state, yeah. corporate welfare. That's how I see neoliberalism. Yeah. And you cut funding for programs directly to the people like Medicare, Social Security, unemployment. And instead, you just give billions, if not trillions of dollars to these corporations, much like we saw the pay- Paycheck Protection Plan, this hundred, maybe a trillion dollars. It was like hundreds of billions of dollars, this program. And uh, it was supposed to keep us employed, to keep us keep our jobs, right? Uh, and it was supposed to be money directly to employees and their paychecks. But what we found out through um, an analyst of this stupid program, like all these programs are, when you give money to corporations, only like 30% actually got to employees. The, the, the majority, 70 plus percent, hundreds of billions of dollars, um, it was divided up between the rich and the powerful, the people that own these corporations, you know, the executives, the shareholders, all the people that, uh, you know, were at the top of this hierarchy, while us at the bottom, we got nothing. And many of what many of us lost our jobs it was maybe the only time in history where the stock market went up and we still lost our jobs. Most of the time, the market goes up and we get nothing. Uh, and, and when it goes down, we get fired. Well, this time the market went up. We got nothing and we got fired. I'm yeah, and then, I'm talking about the COVID economy. The last, you know three yeah. three or so years of COVID, whatever. Well, and it was only right before that that we first heard the term jobless recovery related to the 2008 financial crash. Like jobless recovery, that that's an interesting term. That's worth thinking about for a few minutes. But you know, back to what we were talking about neoliberalism. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with David Harvey. He's um. He's a professor, I think, at Yale, and he actually coined the term. He wrote a book yeah, called yeah. Brief, I've read a lot of his stuff. Yeah, he's got great stuff. Yeah. yeah, dude is dude is brilliant. And yeah. the way I understood him to cast it was like a new version of classical liberalism, like Adam Smith, who was saying all countries of the world should just be like states with permeable borders. It should just be the market that controls the world. And we should just adjudicate transfers between principalities so that right. the market can grow limit transfers and, because money is very fluid it can it can transfer easily between borders 
workers were kind of restricted. We're pretty much limited to where we live, right? It's hard to move, especially across borders. So that's why you have to, instead of liberalizing trade, put some regulations on trade. But what neoliberalism is, is it's quote unquote liberal, liberalizing trade. Essentially what you end up with is a, um, a, uh, a virtual Senate. So let's say, you know, we increase taxes here in the United States for the rich and powerful. Great. We'll just send our money overseas, maybe to Australia or I don't know, somewhere in Europe or maybe the global South where the tax um, restrictions aren't quite as, as severe or strict, or maybe we'll just put it in a shell company or in a tax haven. Yeah. So what you guys well, are virtual that's the thing is like the rich took advantage of the laws that were written for them. It was cheaper to manufacture outside the country because there were not laws or regulations around labor. And the government encouraged them to do whatever they needed to do to make the most money. They that you know, those are the neoliberal policies that allow things like corporate inversion, that call for things like austerity measures. If you get certain kinds of government funding, you have to cut public services to this degree. Um, or you could raise taxes on the rich. So I just tweeted this out. Uh, yeah. I think corporate tax rates, it's like 13% right now. During the heyday in the 1950s, the golden era of capitalism, it was 50%. And of course, the top 1% paid a much higher tax rate. I think it was close to 90% or something like that. Now, yeah, and the World War II. It was like, ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Reagan lowered it super low. Uh he brought it down like to 20% or so. And then I believe like um, Bush and Trump lowered it a little below that. And Joe has been extremely progressive and has now brought like that marginal rate back up to where Reagan had it. It's higher than it's been in like 40 years now, but it's where Reagan put it. Like that's the bar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw something that he only raised it 2.7%, I think for the top mm-hmm. income earners. So it was like, I mean, I guess it was better than nothing, but I mean, two point seven percent of inflation. Yeah, yeah. But what we need is like what the capitalists do is they they have this virtual senate, so they're always looking for the cheapest place to make their products. You know, the most exploited workforce with the least environmental um, regulations. With the, with the most lax labor laws, and they're always going to shift production to that com- country, you know, and when those, when that country, you know, when that peasant population rises up, you know, and, and protest, and maybe they actually get some, some changes, some positive, positive reforms, they're just going to shift that money, that virtual Senate, and they're going to go somewhere else, you know, they're going to buy off some other government or some other political group or party and, and shift production there for a little while, you know, maybe a few quarters, who knows, as long as the gravy train is running, you know, and then when that, when that um, dries up, they'll go somewhere else. So it's just kind of a system where they just find, you know, the nooks and crannies, they, they use their wealth and power and liberal capital in their virtual Senate uh, and just shift that money around to find, you know, countries in the global South and what neoliberalism does is put uh, workers of the global south in competition with the industrialized workers of the rich countries. And that keeps wages down for everyone. So here in the United States, even threat of job transfer, that could kill a strike. You know, that could kill a union organizing attempt because they're just going to say, hey, if you guys organize, guess what? These are Mexican transfer jobs here. We're just going to ship 
the whole factory to Mexico. And that has to affect, even if they don't transfer it, just the threat of transfer, um, you know, that, that can kill any momentum, you know, from well, labor. Yeah. That that's how the rich divide labor against itself. They, there's a concept out there uh, in kind of more communist economics called labor aristocracy. That's that that is one labor force in let's call it the first world pitted against the labor force in the third world. And the first world labor force is going to protect its own interests versus sharing in the common interests of the labor force worldwide. Um, and you know, the rich, there are fewer of them than there are laboring forces, so they have to pit them against each other. And they use globalism, they use neoliberalism exactly like you mentioned to do that. Which, which again, is not new and it's not liberal. No, so if you want to no. talk about what liberal – so what neoliberalism is is like some giant state, um, some powerful state with welfare programs like Social Security, maybe job assistance for those are, that are unemployed, stuff like that. Um, but what liberal, classical liberal theory is, is an attack on, you know, powerful institutions within the society. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the classical era, it was usually against the church and the state. Those were the two, you know, kind of primary power centers within society. But today, there is a much more powerful, um, I guess, epicenter in, in our society. Those are corporations, transnationals, and the corporate elites that run those societies. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, these are, fortunately, maybe, these weren't around, you know, at the time of you know, when classical liberal theory was popular, popularized. But now, um, you know, you got these libertarians that are, you know, that for some reason they think, um, you know, society would be better if we just got rid of government and we were just run by the, you know, unfettered capitalism and these transnational corporations. And that would be an even worse hellscape than we're already in. And already to me, you know, it's a dystopian kind of world, this kind of end stage capitalism that uh, I think maybe Marx talked about a little bit where, yeah, well, you know, I, we're, we're struggling. We're, a lot of people are struggling here yeah. and, uh, and things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse over the decades. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth like uh, doubling down on, on the fact that like classical liberalism tied in with the theories of classical liberalism were social liberalism. That was, you know, religious tolerance. It, it's like we can't transact business and make a ton of money for everybody if we're warring about religions. You know, in when we had uh, the feudal era, people did not produce for profit they produced for consumption and um you know there was a, there was a limit on productivity there was a limit on labor because you were owned by someone else if you were a laborer you didn't have the incentive to produce that a free laborer would so in these classical this liberal is mercantilism theories, right this is pre-capitalism yeah. this is mercantilism well, that's the thing and the, you know when when classical liberalism was emerging from mercantilism like that and adam smith was trying to define the contours he was basically saying that the feudal system is a fetter on productivity it's a fetter on on the profit that can be generated on the technology that can be generated and on just the amount of goods that can be generated if we take religion and monarchy out of the picture we can we can all make more money that was basically his point if we if we make it so we stop arguing about religion politics sex that sort of stuff let's just let's just cash in but the 
the neoliberals have dispensed with the whole social liberalism thing. They've realized that capitalism works just fine without freedom, without democracy, without tolerance, without any of that stuff. Cap you don't need that. Like, look at Russia. Russia is a capitalist country. There are very rich people in Russia, and that is a very illiberal society. Um, they, they, it's, it's a disservice to call, you know, the billionaires here in America, you know, the entrepreneurs, I mean, these are the innovators, these are the job creators, right? And then you go to Russian society, and those are the oligarchs, those are bad. Yeah, you know? yeah. What's the difference? I mean, just... Well, that's the thing, it's the mythology we tell ourselves, because we want to make them seem like the people we should strive Speaking of that be. ad, there was some ad, I forget what it was, it ran several times, like... Shop like a billionaire. Like, get this out of here. Let's tax billionaires out of existence, you know? This consumerism, yeah. this capitalism. And, of course, um, you know, the whole advertising business in the Super Bowl, um, I guess, from my knowledge, uh, I, I believe it's tax deductible. So we pay for the privilege to have our brains rotted. Think about the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars spent yesterday just on stupid advertisement and including advertisements from uh, churches and religions. I heard there's some Christian ads that I didn't really, I, like I said, I, I really kind of tuned out the, um, the advertisement. That's just nonsense. I was kind of going and, you know, doing stuff around the house. I was trying to just keep up with the game, even though, you know, sports ball, it's, it's, it's completely pointless. It has makes no difference in our life who wins, who loses, um, but you know, just, just the ads and, um, just the, the amount of wasted money, you know, essentially money that is spent to corrupt the brain, you know, to control the brain of the populace, to, to, oh, yeah. to control public consciousness. Imagine if all that money that was spent yesterday on stupid ads, like shop like a billionaire was put forth to, you know, subsidize housing or make, you know, uh, public housing projects. Uh, I just retweeted earlier today. I think there are 650-some thousand uh, homeless people in America, and we have over 15 million vacant homes. So we don't have a homelessness problem. We have a problem of will. I mean, if we put all this money towards you know renovating some of these homes, we could solve homelessness in a weekend. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, for me, for the Super Bowl, like I said, I'm not personally a sports guy. I understand – people people are um and that it's like one of the few communal things that we can do it because it happens live but for me the advertising is just such an interesting spectacle because it's you get to see what i'd consider like the worst of the worst the lowest of the low the yeah. most shameless most brash way of putting it in your face you see like the companies who are willing to spend it it was seven million dollars a spot for an ad in the super bowl cbs and nfl get that you know and for the company doing the ad it's business costs so it's a tax write-off so we're subsidizing them putting a message in front of us so cbs and nfl can run to the bank but it's also you see like yeah the 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 weirdo Jesus commercials the RFK well, ad well, yeah that was I was amazed RFK has the money to do a Super Bowl ad I, I don't think he's got a shot here or neither does do I think any independent or third party at least right now what do you think about religions doing advertisements being tax free institutions should they be taxed you know what do you think and we talked a little bit about religious tolerance what do you think about a church or a religion doing a doing a spot on uh on the super bowl uh i think if you have seven million dollars to spend in your church uh 
you should pay taxes. I think if you're a megachurch like Joel Osteen and you have a helicopter that you fly back and forth every day in mansions on both coasts, you should pay taxes. You're a business. You generate profit. And they just had a shooting at their church, didn't they? And I heard the yeah, yeah said something about free Palestine or something along those lines. I might be confusing a couple of these together, but I read something about a church shooting, and one of yeah. the people wrote free Palestine. Interesting. Well, yeah, the encapsulated version was that it was a lady who had established mental health problems, and she went in there with like a something that said prefect free Palestine, a gun, and her kid, and was taken out by security there, and her kid got shot, too. Terrible all around, but in terms of religion in the U.S., kind of kind of blown out large, I, I really feel like if, you know, so many fundamentalist or conservative religious people really want to play in politics. You know, we have like CPAC, um, you have all of these, these, these preachers with, with YouTube shows, uh, giving super chats and stuff like that. Like these people are, are making political opinions. They're making political endorsements. They're making political speech, but they're not paying any taxes on that. I, I think if you, if you want to take part in the political process, then you pay taxes. It, it, you're tax exempt because your service is of a public good. If you're prioritizing one group of people over another, then your service isn't a public good. It shouldn't be, uh, you know, tax free. It, it's a business that's that's in an interest for a particular social group, um, but I think. Religion is really cynically wrangled by a lot of people who don't actually believe in any of it. It's just it's it's a way it's another way for the rich to influence the poor. You know, it's like God and guns. It's it's a culture division so that people don't see class division. I agree. No, you're actually right on here. This is what I wanted to talk about. So. Um, you know, the Democrats, the, the neoliberals, they at least appear to women, minorities, the working class, at least historically they have, classically they have. At this point, though, they might not even believe their own rhetoric because you've got people like Joe Biden right now, the figurehead of the Democratic Party. He's been trying to re- repeal things like Medicare, Social Security, defund them for his entire career. You know, those are things that you would think the Democratic Party was founded on. But then you have the, the neocons, you know, they're... I don't really know what their party stands for other than, you know, en- enriching, um, you know, the rich and powerful, making them even richer than they already are, um, you know, basically getting rid of any regulation, any anything that would impede businesses ability to profit all regulations, environmental, workplace, OSHA, labor laws, all that kind of stuff. They just want to repeal anything that interferes with businesses' ability to rob and exploit. So what you have is the neocons who no longer really resemble a parliamentary party. Uh, But what they've been able to do is by pretending to be religious, they get a a very um, devout sector of the um, population of the citizen body, maybe about 30%, you know, the evangelicals, the Christian fundamentalists, they, they are very loyal. They, they, they vote in large numbers. 
Um, maybe, again, maybe 30% of the population who are probably going to vote Republican no matter what, no matter who's run, even if it's someone like Donald Trump who, you know, I don't think he would know the difference between a church and a strip club if he was walking down a street. You know, I don't know that guy's ever been in a church other than for that one uh, for that one um, photo op. Um, yeah. Yeah. But with the neocons, you know, what, what their what their kind of party is to me, um, what they stand for, how they rally their base, you know, rally around the family pocket full of shells. Right. Kind of fear, militarism, the police force, religion, God, country. I mean, you know, these, these aren't uh, these aren't, you know, minority groups or pop- population centers or, or class centers. These are just kind of. You know, jingoist ideas, it seems to appeal, though, to, again, a certain very loyal sector of the population that will, you know, kind of kind of eat these kind of, you know, militarism, God, country, fear, um, you know, kind of eat that stuff up, patriotism, all those kind of, you know, propagandized words that don't really mean much. Well, this is where I think you get some interesting divisions between, like, actual, like, like, neoconservatives and paleoconservatives and there's been like a big schism between those two groups since donald trump has come along i mean there was a lot of bubbling underground before like with the tea party and stuff what's a paleoconservative so yeah i I think i kind of i I consider myself a classical conservative like i take things like liberty justice democracy seriously so some of the tea party stuff it appeals to me a little bit you know like i'm a far leftist right but some of that small government freedom liberty stuff appeals to me a little bit. So go ahead. Talk, what's what's the paleoconservatism? What's all that? What's that about? When I think of classic neoconservatives, I think of people like Dick Cheney, Liz yeah. Cheney, yeah. Nikki Haley, Donald Rumsfeld, John Ashcroft, people like that. Trump is not like, that. Trump is definitely not oh. that. And Trump appeals to the paleoconservatives. The paleoconservatives are definitely patriots. They're definitely God, guns, glory, religious fundamentalists, social conservatives. But their view, their American exceptionalist view, uh, makes them against global wars of aggression against great power dynamics like we were talking about with the international so relations. Let me interject this real quick. We, uh, just one point, and then you can keep going. we got about 10 minutes to go. Trump had mentioned something about, and he seemed to be, you know, obviously the military budget increased under Trump, and, you know, he, I'm sure he committed numerous war, war crimes and ordered lots of strikes on innocent targets and whatnot. Um, but he's, he had mentioned uh, that NATO, he would, any, any country that was delinquent, if Russia attacked them, we wouldn't help. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I don't know if he even takes himself seriously or if he even means it, but that's just like interesting ideology or interesting things to think about. You know, you don't see that kind of stuff said by a normal Republican, right? I mean, that's that's not, you know, your kind of neocon um, ideology. That's not something that you would see like George W. Bush or the first Bush or Dick Cheney saying, and probably not Reagan saying either. That's just, you know, he's kind of like a, he's kind of like a wild card. He kind of says what he thinks, but uh, some people in that conservative or whatever, I wouldn't even call it conservative, so-called conservative, but some people in that Republican base, it appeals to me. And I'm anti-NATO. I'd like to abolish NATO. So that appeals to me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's really the split, one of the big splits between 
paleoconservatives and neoconservatives is neoconservatives are definitely concerned with power arrangements in the world. And NATO is sort of like a junior partner to the U.S. It's basically a way to keep all the European countries in line so they basically get the, the, the might of the American nuclear arsenal to back them up. But that means that they go along more with what we want financially and and you know how we want to project power in the world whereas like the 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 paleo conservatives tend to be isolationists they tend to be anti-war they tend to not want to be in global organizations which to me is just really interesting because the two groups used to be commingled, like neoconservatives, paleoconservatives. We used to just call it conservatives. So you're seeing a, and, you're seeing a split kind of going on. Yeah, going on yeah. There's kind part. of like a, a, a new division. And, and Trump was maybe the catalyst to this split. Um. I think he was a bit of a symptom, but a bit of a catalyst. You know, I mean, there was the Tea Party stuff before where there were some rumblings of that. But I feel like he was really like the sharp schism after that. And I think it went in a direction people didn't necessarily think it was going to go. And I feel like the, the there's a third bubble there on, on the right. You have like your neoconservatives, your paleoconservatives, and then there are the libertarians that are in there that don't necessarily think – what either of those other two subgroups think. And, you know, you used to have the Republican Big Tent where it was all those groups and they all voted in a monolith. Yeah, they but all voted they, together on every yeah. issue, no matter what. But now with this realignment of global... Yeah, yeah, this realignment of global power politics, they're finding out that their politics don't necessarily align. Neoconservatives are very pro-Israel, very anti-Iran, very anti-China. You know, paleoconservatives... Uh, a lot of them are anti-Semitic, so they don't give a shit about Israel. Uh, they're protectionists, so they don't want to afford uh, NATO protection or Taiwan protection or Israel protection. Well, they're uh, all protectionists. The... No one is in favor of capitalism. Capitalism would fail before it even got off the ground. Everyone you know, in positions of power, they, they are not in favor of democracy. They are not in favor of real capitalism. They are in favor of protections. They are in favor of the nanny state. For example, the banking system, too big to fail. The bailouts are factored in. They know that, you know, if these risk, they make these risky investments, these bankers, you know, they make these risky investments and crash the economy like they've done time and time again every seven or so years, that boom-bust cycle of capitalism. They know they're not going to lose their jobs. They know that they're going to get bailed out and they're going to, you know, probably have, um, uh, you know, big bonuses and, you know, in no time, maybe six months, a year down the line, it's not going to be a big deal. And, um, you know, they make these risky investments because the payoffs are huge. And, and um, you know, the risks are not that risky to them personally, because, you know, you have this nanny state behind them. So, you know, they, there's a lot of people that talk about capitalism, but, uh, you know, there's nothing about, um, you know, corporate subsidies and bailouts and capitalism. If you make a risky investment and it fails, you go bust. You know, if your company fails, that's it. You know, it's not getting bailed out like, you know, the airlines got bailed out or, you know, the banks got bailed out or whatever, um, you know, whatever the next boom bust cycle is. Uh, capitalism, you know, it, it's protectionary. It's capitalism, like MLK said, it's capitalism for the poor and uh, socialism for the rich. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And I, I think it's always been that way. I don't think that we, we're ever going to or that we've ever had the, the pure form of capitalism that libertarians think exists outside crony capitalism. That they like, think they crony want. Crony capitalism is capitalism. You know, it, that's kind of like a no true Scotsman thing, that there's somehow this version of it out there that doesn't have all the corruption and glad handing. Like, that's endemic to that system. Those things exist because of capitalism. You can't have it without it. We and never have. It's never have. been tried. It's never, yeah, it's never been tried. Much like, you but know, it can't exist like unicorns tried. haven't been tried, you know? I don't think socialism has, has ever been tried. I think people. No, I agree. Yeah. I think people I, say that, you know, see, we tried socialism. What I think, um, I think, you know, the Soviet Union was, was kind of like state capitalist, you know, or it was more like a totalitarian society. I don't even know what its economic system was, but it was essentially a totalitarian society run by autocrats and dictators. And you had this kind of power structure, this hierarchy, these, this commissar class, you know, these, this class of, you know, people um, that were rich and powerful and made all the decisions. And they were basically unaccountable to the public. So they did what they wanted, you know, and there was actually I even read some stuff that there was actually more turnover in their government than here in the United States. If you look at some of the um, congressional races, incumbents win at a high 90s clip. I think I think the clip was uh, for incumbents winning here in the United States was higher than in the old Soviet Union. So in fact, they actually had more turnover than we do. Well, yeah, and I mean they were trying to go from a backwater feudal economy, forced industrialization. Into... They did some good industrial projects. They, they tried to do an end. They tried to do an end run around capitalism and end up in modernity. And you know they did do a lot of great things. They did about two hundred years of development. And in so did Hitler. It, Hitler did some yeah. great things right. too. That well, that's the thing. Excuse and, me. Did to the, yeah, the and to that, right. to that point, it was to a great detriment of the society, and it you know paid lip service to these ideas of socialism. But socialism was a convenient vehicle for these ambitious, powerful, like like former aristocratic people to do what they wanted in a wartime economy. Like socialism was just a convenient vehicle for it. They, it was you know, they were, it was ideologically popular. I think I mean, the Nazis called themselves socialists. You're right. You know, it's, like, You're right. it's like, it's like the democratic people's Republic of Korea. You know, they can call themselves. Not democratic. Not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not even, yeah, not even a little bit. Let's, uh, we only have a few more minutes left. We got to cut it up again. This is great because there's so yeah. much stuff I wrote down. What about yeah. what do you think about the Putin talk with uh, Tucker Carlson? I've listened to it, a little bit of it. I guess it got a lot of people fired up. Um, but I guess he was just kind of going over the the historical claim to the Ukraine, um, which you know NATO is is a um, is a military alliance. It is. You know, definitely threatening Russian security. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely a, a dangerous military alliance. Uh, we have, you know, a proxy war going on that could end in World War Three and nuclear apocalypse. So a lot of a lot of things kind of going on here. Um, but you know, I guess after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a gentleman's agreement that uh, NATO would not expand one inch. Um, you know, to to the west, and in fact, it's continued to expand. Uh, up until 
you know, recently, I think even in the last year or two, I think didn't, didn't Finland just join or something like that. So what you have is like Ukraine now right on the Russian border, this hostile military alliance, this nuclear, you know, kind of arms race. It's kind of like the Cold War part two. Um, so, yeah, a lot of stuff going on and the global south has, has kind of not not really much opposed, uh, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine, which I, I definitely, you know, the Ukrainians are being victimized by Putin. He's a war criminal, but uh, it's no different than U.S. geopolitics and, and their kind of, um, you know, kind of their, their playbook and, and how they do things. It's just, you know, it's just kind of two, two, two ways of doing things, but they're, they're both criminal, you know, what's going on in Gaza and what's going on in the Ukraine. But go ahead. What, what do you think about the, uh, the Tucker Carlson, the Putin stuff and anything else you'd like to get to? You got about a minute or a minute and a half. Uh, I think Putin ran roughshod over Tucker Carlson because he is infinitely smarter than him, and he showed up with an agenda. Tucker Carlson is just like a rich kid who just, you know, he he woke up on third base and thought he hit a home run. I think he got, him, I already made him wait for two hours, as Putin usually does, which I found. Of course he did, yeah. and and he and he played his ass and rode it all the way and just kind of said whatever he wanted. Um, you know, and just like just like you said, like like I am not a Putin fan. I don't think he's a good guy, but I think he has a point in doing what he's doing. And I also think that, you know, he has fascistic tendencies, but also NATO has fascistic roots. Vladimir Lenin in uh but anyways, Vladimir Lenin said that, you know, in in, in battles of capital against each other the only the only path is revolutionary defeatism you can't pick a side you have to let them fight it out as painful as it is for the people in it you know picking red fascism versus blue fascism is picking fascism i'm all about working class politics power to the people hey let's get together again I got my fist up in the air too. This is a this is a blast. We got to talk about right more music industry stuff. I'm glad Absolutely. you're doing well. I'm happy to catch up with you. Let's do it again. Let's let's cut it up again. I, I like our rapport, and I like uh, I like the way you you see the world. I think we see it very similarly. Yes, yes. I had a blast. Let's definitely do it again. All right, my brother. Have a good night. All right, solidarity, hey, dude. Solidarity. special guest, C. Money Burns, for a great discussion on politics, philosophy, Israel, music, and the entertainment industry. Again, I'm your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.
Who are you when there's no one looking? Riddles and fiction, forced perspective and contradiction, pseudoscience and a whole lot of ass. Life comes fast, tricks for the trade. Terrorize the people, throw them in a cage. Straw men, hey, necessary to keep the face, keep the pace. Keep us with our hands up, democracy. The rich are leading the propaganda, they kicking that sand up, can't see. Got us fucked up, but we gotta get paid. Avoid an escape. Hope through a fantasy, snapped out of luck. And I slapped on a field to still stay rough. Cause it's late in the cave. Tricking my recipe, illusion. Get the best of me, call it necessity. Necessary illusions, they play on my mind. Causing confusion, I seek and your fun. A necessary illusion, I smoke and I meal. That causing confusion, look Science and a whole lot of it.